When you hear the term great power, what comes to mind? God? Maybe. But for the most part, great power refers to something else. Countries and nations. Mani, a Persian prophet around 215 to 275 AD, who lived in Iran and that area, described Rome, China, Aksum and Persia as the four greatest known kingdoms of his time. Welcome to the Alternative History Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, follow, rate, comment on your podcast platform of choice. The podcast now has its own email address. That is alt.history at outlook.com. That's A-L-T dot history at outlook.com. A great power is a nation or state that can influence other states in other parts of the world with some degree of impunity. That is possible because it has great economic, political and military strength. It's not to be confused, however, with a superpower or hyperpower. Oftentimes, we hear the term great power politics, the great game and the balance of power. These terms are arbitrary and often steeped deep in 1800s European power politics. Let me give you some historical context, then we can move our attention to the modern world. First, what do we mean by great? Immense, enormous, gigantic, huge, vast, grand, noteworthy, weighty, serious, momentous, vital, critical, famed, eminent, noted, notable, prominent, renowned, elevated, exalted, dignified, main, grand, leading, What do we mean by power? Well, in this context, we mean sovereignty. The term great power was first used to represent the most important powers in Europe during the post-Napoleonic era, that being the age after the year 1815. The great powers constituted what was known as the Concert of Europe, and claimed the right to joint enforcement of the post-1815 treaties. This Concert of Europe was a consensus among the great powers of the 19th century to maintain the European balance of power and the integrity of the territorial boundaries, call it an unwritten agreement of sorts. The concert represented an extended period of relative peace and stability in Europe following those French Wars of Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars, which had consumed the continent since the 1790s. It is typically divided into two phases with different dynamics. The first phase of the concert from 1815 to the early 1850s or 1860s and the second from the early 1880s to the year 1914. The Congress of Vienna from 1814 to 15 was an international diplomatic conference in Vienna to reconstitute the European political order after the downfall of French Emperor Napoleon I. It was actually a meeting of ambassadors of European states chaired by Australian leader Metternich and held in Vienna, henceforth the Congress of Vienna. 
The objective of the Congress was to provide a long-term peace plan for Europe by settling critical issues arising from the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Age. The goal was not simply to restore old boundaries, but to resize the main powers so they could balance each other out and remain at peace. You see, the French Revolution and the subsequent wars under Napoleon I was as big as what we would consider an event as World War I was. It was a monumental event. Its aftermath needed to secure peace. The Congress of Vienna attempted to do just that. The first phase of the Concert of Europe was dominated by the five great powers of the time, Austria, France, Prussia, Russia, and the United Kingdom. The initial plan was to hold regular congresses amongst the great powers to resolve potential disputes. In practice, however, congresses were held on an ad hoc basis and was somewhat successful in preventing localized conflicts. The concert faced a major challenge in the revolutions of 1848, which sought national independence, national unity, and liberal and democratic reforms. This age of nationalism brought the first phase of the concert to an end. It was unable to prevent the wars leading to the unification of Italy and then Germany in 1871, which remade the maps of Europe. Following German unification, German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck sought to revive the concept of Europe to protect Germany's gains and secure its leading role in European affairs. This revitalized concert now included Austria, which was by then Austria-Hungary, France, Italy, Russia and Britain, with Germany as the driving continental power. This second phase oversaw a further period of relative peace and stability from the 1870s to 1914 and facilitated the growth of European colonial and imperial control in Africa and Asia without wars between the great powers in Europe. The concert ended with World War I in 1914. The whole idea here was to maintain what became known as the balance of power between states. In short, states may secure their survival by preventing any one other state from gaining enough military power to dominate all the others. This ultimately secured relative peace in Europe between 1814 and 1914. That's a hundred years. Meaning a reasonable success no less in due part to Metternich and then Bismarck. Once World War I ended, the new great powers emerged. Germany and its allies and Russia were no longer in that great power category. The victors of World War I were the great powers who enforced the peace treaty and the peace at the Versailles Peace Treaty in 1919 with starry hopes of a new Congress of Vienna. That, however, failed in 1939, when British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain declared war on Germany after the Germans invaded Poland. At the end of World War II, we saw new great powers emerge. Then, another attempt by these great powers to recreate that Congress of Vienna. Only this time, in the shape and form of the United Nations. There were five great powers at the Congress of Vienna. The UN has five permanent members. The four biggest powers of 1945 were the UK, 
the USA, the USSR, and France, plus what is now Taiwan as China. That rounded out the five. Eventually, China proper replaced Taiwan. But even to this day, the lesser powers of Britain and France remain on that five permanent members list. Although five great powers took the stage in 1945, it was only two great powers who dominated proceedings from 1945 to 1991, those being the United States and the Soviet Union. But the USSR and the USA were not simply great powers. Nope, they were superpowers, because they had the ownership and intent to use their superpower status, that nuclear option. This made them much improved than an old-fashioned great power, but not as huge as a hyperpower. A hyperpower? Only the United States has had that honour. The US between 1991, at the end of the Cold War, to 2003, the start of the Iraq War, was that hyperpower, where it was simply unchallenged on the international stage. When the USSR fell, so did its standing. It went from superpower to no existence at all overnight. If we assume Russia to be the successor state of the Soviet Union, then it was not even a great power in 1992, bar nuclear weapons. However, by 2003, it had moved back to the great power status league table. In 2003, the US attacked and invaded Iraq. The biggest geopolitical victim of this event was the US itself. In one single swoop, it lost hyperpower status and edged down a peg to superpower level. Even hyperpowers have their limits as the US found out the hard way. The US had picked up an amazing amount of popular global support after the September 11th attacks but lost that support once it decided to invade Iraq. So what moved the US down from its hyperpower role? Was it two big invasions? Because they were bogged down in dirty wars? Was it all that military spend? Was it the countless deaths and destruction? Endless foreign military bases? Nope, none of that. But instead, influence and economics. You see, it lost influence because the Iraq invasion was so outright opposed by so many. It lost economics because while the US was razor-focused on finding terrorists and bringing down Iraq, that it lost sight of the overall geopolitical shift that was taking place. Not a decline in US power, but the arrival on the scene of other powers, giving it relative competition. One not seen since the collapse of the USSR in 1991. Great powers come and go. Hyperpowers seem to come and go too, as do superpowers. I'm going to spend the remainder of this podcast trying to understand who the great powers are today. That's as of June 2021. And what the future holds. But before I do, I'd like to read out what the Hague Center of Strategic Studies reported in the year 2014. And I'm quoting here, Great powers are disproportionately engaged in alliances and wars, 
and their diplomatic weight is often cemented by their strong role in international institutions and forums. This unequal distribution of power and prestige leads to a set of rights and rules governing interactions among states that sees incumbent powers competing to maintain the status quo and keeping their global influence. In today's international system, there are four great powers that fit this definition. The US, Russia, China, and the European Union, whereby the EU is considered to be the sum of its parts. If we distill from this description of great power attributes and capabilities a list of criteria, it is clear why these four powers dominate the international security debate. The possession of superior military and economic capabilities can be translated into measurements such as military expenditure and GDP, and nowhere are there more inherent privileges of a great power more visible than the voting mechanisms of the United Nations Security Council, where five permanent members have an overriding veto. The top 10 countries ranked on the basis of military expenditure correspond almost exactly with the top 10 countries ranked on the basis of GDP, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, which is suppressed by Brazil. Notably, each country with a permanent seat on the UN Security Council also finds itself in the top 10 military and economic powers. When taken as a sum of its parts, the EU scores highest in terms of economic wealth and diplomatic wealth in the UN Security Council. However, this is followed closely by the US, which tops the military expenditures ranking, and then Russia, and then China, both of whom exert strong military, economic, and diplomatic influence in the international system. End quote. That's the Hague Centre of Strategic Studies, based in Europe, so it's a very Eurocentric view. I have my own criteria. A measure that, for me, stands the litmus test of time when measuring great powers. Because I don't see just influence and economics as traits of great powers. So I want to add five additional criteria to act as a judge. Number one. Great powers fight with other great powers, both in direct and indirect conflict. Number two, great powers kill innocent people at home. Number three, great powers kill innocent people abroad. Number four, great powers are brutal to smaller, often third-party countries or players. Number five, great powers are open to destruction of entire societies, and that destruction is normalized, and they need to be open to genocide. Those are my five. So yes, influence, i.e. power, and economics, i.e. wealth, are important. But it is how you use that power and wealth, the actions, not just the fancy words, that make or break a great power. I want to start somewhere else entirely. I want to start with Bhutan. Bhutan is a tiny mountainous Buddhist country who is sandwiched between the two largest countries on the planet. India on one side, China on the other. Its defense is taken care of by the Indian army. Bhutan's sovereignty is highly dependent on India. It also must keep China somewhat sweet. Its entire existence is dependent on the whim of the two neighboring powers. The only benefit it has is that Bhutan acts as a buffer state 
between China and India, giving it something of that buffer state feel between the two bigger countries. In short, Bhutan is no great power. It has no influence whatsoever other than on its own people. It can focus, as it should, on things like they have, known as the happiness index, rather than GDP, and Buddhism or tourism. Not far from Bhutan is Nepal, another country sandwiched between India and China. Also mountainous, has a similar-ish geography. Nepal in the south has some plains, but at the north it peaks and it hosts Mount Everest. Nepal depends on diplomacy for national defense. That said, that said, it has its own military and is not dependent on India or China for its defense. It has a friendship agreement with both countries, though it also has an open border with India, with whom it has closer cultural ties. That said, there are some niggly border issues with India. It has no such issue with China, who is also a heavy investor in Nepal. Nepal's foreign policy is of balance between India and China. All things are just like Bhutan. But what Nepal has is its own armed forces and a completely independent foreign policy, or at least more independent than that of Bhutan. In other words, Nepal has immensely more independence than Bhutan in its foreign policy navigation. That is even though Nepal economically is almost entirely dependent on India. Bhutan, though, exercises sovereignty too, and is no walkover. Bhutan does not have formal diplomatic ties with China, but exchanges of visits at various levels with China has significantly increased in recent times. The first bilateral agreement between China and Bhutan was signed as recently as 1998. The problem for Bhutan is that its border with China isn't demarcated and has caused various clashes between the Indian army that supports Bhutan and the Chinese army across that border. But the point here is to compare Nepal and Bhutan. And that point is important because I want to highlight a power play. That an independent foreign policy is important. That an armed force demonstrates power. That staking out positions, even in the most sensitive of situations, is important, and everyone, even the smallest and possibly least sovereign of countries, has strategic advantages, and has power, more than others like to think they have. Just because you aren't a great power does not mean that the country is at a disadvantage, or it does not matter. In fact, quite the opposite can also be true. Not being a great power can be a complete benefit. Or, if you're intelligent or clever, you can use that to your advantage and survive and win and thrive. Then you have a country like Afghanistan. Well, for the last several decades, this area has been the focus of multiple stakeholders, foreign invaders. Though a much larger landmass than both Bhutan or Nepal, it has had its land invaded and occupied by bigger players. In addition, it has been at war with itself. These so-called civil wars allow outsiders to fill a vacuum or play one side against the other. This transforms 
the country to nothing more than a landmass. This makes Afghanistan the extreme opposite of a great power. What about the opposite end of the spectrum then? The United States. It fits all the main indicators. It's a large country, lots of resources, ability to print endless money, a solid economy, big military spend, but it also has intent. Under my five-point plan, it fits nicely. Point number one, great powers fight with other great powers, both indirectly and directly. Yes, the US in the recent past has come into conflict with China in the South China Sea and with Russia in the Middle East and Eastern Europe. That's not including the tit-for-tat cyber wars between the US and China and Russia. Great powers kill innocent people at home. This one is a bit of a mixed bag for the US. It is true that there is some police brutality, imprisonment, etc. Indeed, police in the US are paramilitary in some places. But the police brutality is lower in the US than many other countries. Great powers kill innocent people abroad. Yes, absolutely. This is something the US does quite well and has been engaged in a variety of conflicts to do just this. Iraq, Korean and Vietnam wars were recent examples. Indeed, as recently as 2014 to 2016, the US was engaged in mass drone campaigns to target terrorists. Much of the time, the targets and additional collateral were completely innocent people. A great power must take that in their stride and be generally okay with the activity, because it is ultimately necessary to maintain great power status. A great power must be brutal to smaller, often third-party players. Yes, here too. The US has been pretty good. Think about attempted coup d'etats the US had tried and succeeded and failed. Successes include places like Nicaragua, but the list of failures includes the brazen attempts to remove Hugo Chavez, then the Venezuelan president, President Erdogan in Turkey, the so-called color revolutions in former Soviet countries and the Muslim world. This isn't even scratching the surface if you go further back in time. My last point is that great powers should be open to the destruction of entire societies where it is normalized, and you need to be open to genocide. Now, although the US has a talk-the-talk policy, like any decent superpower, it does not walk the walk. And if you want to be a great power, you need a sketchy history. Without extinguishing the native populations, there would be no US landmass. Without dropping nukes on Japanese cities and firebombing places like Tokyo, the US would not be where it is today. The US is a great power because it has these intentions and attributes. China is a country that has been swimming in the same pond as the US since 2003. It has massive economic power. It also has big military power. It is certainly a country with the resources. However, is it a country that passes my litmus test? Well, I think a great power needs to fight with other great powers, both in direct and indirect conflicts. Indirect aggression, yes, certainly, in the South China Sea, possibly Tibet and Hong Kong. But that's the backyard, not a military adventure in or around other great powers such as the US. China is mostly, it seems, 
in barracks right now with only locally infused conflicts. Unlike the US or the USSR before it, or even the British before them, the Chinese seem to be engaged in the South China Sea, Tibet, and other areas around the Chinese homeland. My second point is that great powers kill innocent people at home. Yes, hands down, absolutely. China does not shy away from making civilians targets, be they local or foreign. Recent examples include activities in Hong Kong against the protesters, the Uyghurs, and Tibet. And these don't even include the activities around the Cultural Revolution and issues around that. My, my other point is that great powers need to be able to kill innocent people abroad. For China, this has actually been somewhat rare. The Chinese have had border clashes with India, Bhutan, and a bunch of countries around the South China Sea. But for the most part, at least generally, China does not go far away from its own lands and kills innocent people far away from its territory. Yes, it kills innocent people, its own innocent people, but it doesn't kill other people's innocent people. This is a black mark on becoming a great power, at least on my litmus test. It should be going out and killing people in other countries far away from its territory. My next point is that it needs to be brutal to smaller countries, often third-party players, if it wants to keep great power status. In this, yes, the Chinese often use bully boy and aggressive tactics, known sometimes as wolf diplomacy, to assert its own power over third-party countries. This often has the guise of economic pain or cyber hacks if a country goes against the general grain of Chinese policy. And lastly, a great power should be open to the destruction of entire society where it is normalized and you need to be open to genocide. The Chinese are good at this also. Recent encounters with the Uyghurs have suggested that the government are open to curtailing domestic dissent at almost any cost. Tibet has largely also been pacified. China is a great power, but it lacks the intent or ability somehow to attack and invade foreign countries to assert its dominance. China is too focused on killing its own rather than others. Russia has seen much transformation in the prior 150 years, where it went from empire to civil war to communism to collapse to autocratic government where it is today. It isn't as economically mighty as it once was, and it cannot compete with smaller countries like Japan on the economic front. But it is a massive country, in fact the largest in the world, and also full of natural resources. It also has a military no one can ignore, not just because they have nuclear weapons, but also because they use their military to amazing effect. Let's use my litmus test. Number one, a great power must engage with other great powers, both in direct and indirect conflict. In this, yes, the Russians, even in 2015, clashed with the Americans indirectly in Syria and in 1999 in Kosovo. Secondly, 
a great power should be open to killing innocent people at home. Check. Yes, they do. The Russians have put a stop to any opposition to the government to keep a strong grip on to keep a strong grip and stability. Dissidents have vanished or have been poisoned. This has happened in Russia and outside Russia. My next point. Great powers are should be open to killing innocent people abroad. Yes, the Russians have been involved in Ukraine and in Syria. Small yet geopolitically significant footprints. Next, a great power needs to be brutal to smaller, often third-party players. Here, not so much. The Russian government is too focused on the bigger players, such as the Franco-German-led EU, the UK, the US and China, with passing interest in Japan, India and others. My last point on the litmus test is that great powers need to be open to destruction of entire societies where it should be normalized and you need to be open to genocide. Here, yes, but like China, Russia seems to be only doing this to its own people. Think of Stalin's purges, the Civil War, and then right up to the October Revolution and since. So Russia makes it to the great power list, but it must work harder on its economy and above all, like China, might need to consider physically invading someone else to keep the great power status. Cyber attacks are okay, but often status is given by boots on the ground. Now, of course, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan is a case in point, as is some Eastern European countries that were invaded where Soviet hegemony was supreme. So they do know the risks to doing this, and they also know that by doing this, they do get some brownie points in great power politics. India is seen as an up-and-coming power. In my view, it has sketchy credentials to join the Great Power Club. Let's use my litmus. Number one, fight with other great powers, both indirectly and directly. Yes, India has had direct confrontation with China on its northern borders on and off since 2012. Number two, kill innocent people at home. India has issues with domestic terrorism in places like Kashmir and some left-wing groups where people can suddenly vanish in various encounters. India also has its own sectarian issues with some Sikhs and some Muslims and some Hindus. Number three, great powers kill innocent people abroad. No, India has a poor record on this. To be a great power, killing innocents abroad is a battle scar that needs to have been had. The more innocents that are targeted, the better for one's overall reputation in the great power club. Next point, great powers need to be brutal to smaller, often third-party players. Other than to Pakistan and in the past to Sri Lanka, India has been a benign power. True, the Indians sided with the Soviets during much of the Cold War, but as a rule, India stays inside its own region. Lastly, great powers are open to destruction of entire societies where it is normalized and you see to be open to genocide. Well, although India's enemies accuse it of such in the 1980s Punjab and Kashmir since since the 1980s, internally India is not open to genocide and it does a poor job of it. 
it has not been involved in any mass societal destruction anywhere in the world at all. India, therefore, is not a great power, not even close. In addition to all this, India lacks the ability to go too far away from its own landmass, plus lacks the economic weight to do so. I won't go into detail on Japan, the EU and the UK. These countries host foreign soldiers in the guise of the US. We cannot consider them completely sovereign nations. They get the generally free protection from the US that then enables them to spend more of their economic GDP building a better society in terms of jobs, safety nets, education and healthcare. They have economic might, but not military power. They may sometimes project military powers, but it is under the US watchful eye. They are not free countries, though they are doing extremely well under the UN, uh, sorry, US regime. What about other countries? Nope, no one else comes near. Not even wannabes. But then again, why do you need to be a great power? It's not really a great deal. Invading countries, spy games, military misadventures, and so on and such forth, keep a status that is often like keeping up with the Joneses, but on a global scale. Did the Soviets do well out of Afghanistan? Did the US do good out of Korea, Vietnam, or Iraq? Not really. It's great for the history books, a few egos, and a politician, but being a great power can serve against the population of the great power itself. Sometimes it's better to be Japan and Germany in 2021 than Japan and Germany in 1941. Sometimes it's better to be Bhutan and Kenya than it is to be Russia and the US. The immediate future of great powers is a three-way street, the US, Russia, and China. Let's hope they keep a lid on the conflicts and the killing. History, however, is witness to another story. You have been listening to an alternative history podcast. Please, please, please make sure to like, subscribe and comment on the podcast platform of your choice. Thank you again so very much.